Well, the U.S. fan base, they want to see something they can rally around ahead of their trip to Qatar. Oh, great ball from Zimmerman. Weston McKinney once again making the runs. Tremendous control by McKinney. Gets the shot away. ESPN Plus alongside Hercules Gomez. I'm Sebastian Salazar. Great to be with you as the last international break before the World Cup has come to a close. We are, Herc, now just 50 plus days away from the start of the World Cup in Qatar. How are you feeling? I'm feeling good. I can't believe it's almost just 50 days till Qatar. There's so many questions to be asked. Oh, no. Yes, especially for the teams that we cover. Uh, actually, for most of CONCACAF, really. Oh, for CONCACAF. most of the world. Uh, Except as Canada. We have only, oh, Canada. Uh, a couple months. Yeah, yeah. Let's, uh, let's give Canada some love, as we always do on this show. We got uh, lots coming on this edition of Football Americas. Taylor Twelman is waiting in the wings. He's going to join us in just a second. We're going to talk about the U.S. against Saudi Arabia, U.S. against Japan as well. Mauricio Pedrosa is going to join us as well as we talk about El Tri. Of course, they lost 3-2 against Colombia late on Tuesday night. Julie Foudy scheduled to join the program as we will discuss the U.S. women's national team roster that just dropped. Big games coming up against England and Spain. And, Herc, we have a clue, a hint as to where the final of the 2026 FIFA World Cup may be played. But we'll leave that for later in the show. We're going to start Shameless. with the U.S. men's national team, who in their last match before the World Cup Settled for a 0-0 draw against Saudi Arabia on Tuesday in Spain. This comes, of course, on the heels of a disappointing 2-0 loss to Japan last week. Now, unlike the game against Japan, Herc, this is very important, the U.S. did manage to get a shot on goal. Uh, not just one shot on goal, two shots there on goal. There we go! In the 0-0 uh, draw against Saudi Arabia. Um, that was the good news, maybe the good news. Uh, the bad news is that it was another game without a goal and another game without a win. Here's more reaction from Spain. I think it's a mixed bag. I think there is a lot of frustration because we wanted to end on a little bit more of a positive note, get a result uh, against the quality side. But, you know, it's understandable that there are um, probably, probably some nerves in the group, probably um, guys who are anxious out there. but. You know, we gotta we gotta put that behind us. And the way that you make the team, the way that you get on the plane, is by playing confident, playing up to your abilities and your standards. And, and we just weren't quite able to get everyone uh, up to that level tonight. I feel like in the final third, you know, we could have done more as a team, cross the ball more. You know, there were some some combinations that we could have been cleaner on. You know, but as a team, you know, we we know we have to get better and just improve. Uh, I'm not panicked at all. Uh, you know, we have a fresh slate going into the World Cup, and uh, we're going to give it everything that we have. Um, you know, in those, in that first of all, those first three games in the in the group stage, and uh, I know that we're gonna we're gonna do well. I think we have quality on the ball, but uh, I think there's times where we can, uh, you know, use our strengths a bit more and uh, and be sort of a nasty team uh, to play against and just a difficult team to play against. I think we saw glimpses of that tonight. You know, in the midfield, we really want to, you know, we really want to dominate that battle for sure. And uh, yeah, like I said, we're just going to continue to try to play more attacking and find ways to score goals. I think you know if we're going to evaluate um, everybody, what I'd say in general. There's not many players that performed up to their normal levels in this camp, and that's just how it is. Yeah, I, no, I think we got some clarity. You know, we we talked about it today with the group and um, with the coaching group, and you know, I think things became pretty clear. What became clear? Things. <laughs> Things, things, people. 
For more on the U.S. men's national team mm. and their recent performances against Saudi Arabia and Japan, we call on Taylor Twelman. Taylor, great to have you back with us here on Football Americas. Yeah, great to have, great to be with you guys. Uh, how long do we have? Forty-five minutes? Hour? <laughs> yes. Two hours? <laughs> yes. Well, we've got a lot of things to cover, as uh, as Greg Berhalter we'll would say. Uh, let's start there. <laughs> what things did we learn about this U.S. men's national team? Not just the game against Saudi Arabia but the game against Japan as well. Kind of what's your big takeaway, Taylor? My biggest takeaway is all the concerns that all of us on the outside looking in had going into the final two games and ultimately to the World Cup. Those concerns are real. They're legitimate. Other than who's your goalkeeper? Matt Turner's mm. your starting goalkeeper. That debate is over. He's won that position. I'd argue he won that position during qualifying, but that's neither here nor there. He's your starting goalkeeper. Who are the center back partnership? We don't know that answer. Who's the best three in the midfield? I don't think we know that answer with mm. the way Weston McKenney played in this camp. And secondly, most importantly, I'd argue right now, we don't have anyone that can score goals. And when you mm. think about that question, in the last 12 games, Herc and Seb, eight of those 12, they did not score a single goal from open play. If you are not concerned about this team in the final third, then I'm not sure you've been paying attention for the last 18 months. That is probably my biggest concern and the biggest takeaway I had from the, these two games. Yeah, a few things I learned. I learned health is a major issue with this generation. And when that health is mm -hmm. tested, so is this team's ability to break down the following that we already knew, a low block. I knew that they struggled to generate any type of offense versus a low block. But all of a sudden, Japan did it, and at times, Saudi Arabia. Any team that presses you, all of a sudden you cough up the ball and you make it that easy for them to come yeah. right back down your throats. A few things I learned from the U U.S. men's national team without going into further detail because I'm sure we're going to talk a lot more about it right now. Yeah, the, uh, the things that we, we did learn, I think, are limited, right? We had some big questions that we needed answered. Nine center backs, we're going to talk mm -hmm. about those in a little bit. Matt Turner's maybe the one thing you come out and you say, okay, clearly this is a guy uh, who did what he needed to do in this moment to put at least one one question mark to bed when it comes to this U.S. men's national team. To your point about health, Herc, I think really what you're talking about is depth, right? Because we all started scratching our heads when Greg Berhalter said, I got, I got five starters missing. But I think what you see is that this team really struggles when it doesn't have its, its A team, right? It, it really is not a complete team. And that drop-off, and I think this is true across the midfield line and definitely the defensive line. Maybe we'll leave the front three out of it. But the drop-off from the starters to the next guy, to that number two guy on the depth chart, is very, very serious. And I think it's not just in terms of, you know, you don't have depth when it comes to maybe your 13th, 14th guys. You also don't have depth of stars. This team needs its stars to play well. It needs Christian Pulisic to play well. It needs Weston McKinney to play well. And what did we see in this window? We didn't see Pulisic mm -hmm. a lot. I don't think he played particularly well when he was on the field. We definitely didn't see, to what the point Taylor makes, the best out of Weston McKinney, when those two guys aren't there and you got a Eunice Moose out, it's like, well, where, where's, where's the goals? Where's the quality? Where's the star power? Like, this team didn't have uh, mm -hmm. a lot of answers. All right, uh, let's move on to a, a, a phrase, Taylor, that you made famous five years ago next week. It's crazy <laughs> to think it's been five years ago since What Are We Doing became part of the American soccer lexicon. Uh, but let's, let's turn it to the U.S. national team here. What are we doing with the system? Because I've heard a lot of talk about Greg Berhalter's system. So how do we feel about his system now that we've seen it over the last two games? Uh, I've had questions about the system from the beginning because no matter what, I, and this isn't technically a Greg Berhalter issue, this is an issue in general. When you treat the national team like a club, a club is treated where the system is bigger than the players because you can go out and buy the players that fit your system, your style of play. When you have a national team, that's not the case. The players that are within your national team that are in their prime, they dictate the system that you play. And what we've seen from Greg Berhalter and his quote-unquote system on the road in CONCACAF World Cup qualifying and on the road in these kinds of games, they struggle. They do not score goals. They don't dominate possession. And I think 
Herc hit the nail on the head at the beginning of this. If you high press the U.S. team, they're actually worse than they are against the low blocks teams where they struggled in World Cup qualifying. So if you're Wales, if you're England, and if especially if you're Iran, if you watch the Japan game, be compact, high press. This team is going to shoot themselves in the foot, and they have no chance of creating anything. That's why I question the system, and I've always questioned the system for any national team that's trying to treat this as if the system is bigger than the group of players that are available. Say it louder for the people in the back, Taylor. The players <laughs> on the national team dictate the system. <laughs> the pool dictates the system. What we're seeing right here is the inability, and Taylor, you've spoken it many times, the plan B, when you get punched in the face. So you can't do the system with Walker Zimmerman and Aaron Long. Players, center backs who you're asking them to come out cleanly with the ball and build out of the back who necessarily don't do it week in and week out in a consistent basis like in New York and Nashville, that they don't do that. So don't ask them to do that. Then you're going to put in a converted nine to facilitate other people instead of putting in a nine that you think is hot right now to score goals. No, you want to treat this system as if it's bigger than the players. And Taylor already said it. It's not. Taylor? Nope, and, and, and real quick, Herc, you know this better than anyone. The 2010 World Cup team changed. The trajectory of that team changed because Bob Bradley looked at it and said, you know what, I've got to play Clint Dempsey and Landon Donovan in positions where they're going to touch the ball more and they're going to be most effective, and that ended up being in wide areas for that team. That wasn't through the middle, so that's why the pool of players dictates what you do. And mind you, Herc, you and Seb talked about this on this program here. In World Cup qualifying, when the backs were against the wall, Greg Berhalter switched it a little bit. They were a little bit more direct. They high-pressed a little bit. They played into the profiles of their players. I think it behooves his staff to look at this in the eight days before that Wales game where the entire group is together and say, I'm not so sure we need to try to do this philosophically the way we took over this job. I think it's in our best interest to play direct, to play active, and to play into the profiles of the center backs, the midfield, and most importantly, the front players. It wouldn't totally surprise me if he flips the script. The, uh, the biggest complaints about, like, the system for me have been how, how you're limited in player selection, right? Like, how do you have a system that, that at the end of the day leaves guys like Jordan Peefock out or, or John Brooks or whoever the guy that, um, that you want to mention? I might throw another complaint here in about the system. And, and, Taylor, I wonder if you'll remember this from, like, early days, 2019, Berhalter's taking over. Um, I feel like there were some concerns that the complexities of his system uh, would be a challenge in terms of communicating yes. that to guys in an international break when you got two or three games and Eric you got to Williamson download and said it's so and so and process all that stuff. I wonder if that's also an issue here. If maybe the complexity of the system, or better said, Berhalter's ability to explain it to the guys and then have them execute, um, might also be a problem here when it comes to the system. Not just the fact that it eventually like limits the guys that you might actually. Uh, call in. All right, our next What Are We Doing mm -hmm. is a position that you gentlemen are both very, very familiar with. What are we doing when it comes to the starting number nine position? Taylor Twelman, what do you think? We saw Jesus Ferreira get one start. We saw Ricardo Pepe get another start. We saw some Josh Sargent off the bench. What are we doing at the starting number nine? I'd argue the players that stock the player stock that rose the most in the last two games is Jordan P. Folk. <laughs> I, I, I'd make that argument with anyone because the truth of the, the truth of the matter is the three players that were in there didn't do enough. Now, yeah. Herc, you've known me long enough. Seb, you've worked with me long enough. If my number nine in Jesus Ferreira is dropping deep into the midfield and trying to get the ball five yards off of Tyler Adams, I'm gonna blow a gasket. I'm gonna lose my mind because then the two centers backs of the opposition have absolutely nothing to do and if your wide players aren't doing their job and playing vertical it's the easiest job to defend that Josh Sargent is in great form with the club he only got four minutes in these two games but I look at this profile of Jesus Ferreira and I understand he's Ferreira, he's coming off a career year in MLS I get all of that I totally understand it 
but I don't want my center forward dropping deep into the midfield. Ricardo Pepe's got one goal in his last 11, ga 11 months. 11 months! And you've got the guy that is in the Bundesliga with three goals, three assists for one of the top two teams in the league, and he's not part of your 26. You will never, ever, ever convince me otherwise that that player right there can't be of benefit to you, and I honestly believe that coaching staff right now is looking at each other in the room going, we're really not going to do this? We're really going to keep that guy home? Mm. It, it can't happen, and it shouldn't happen. Let me play devil's advocate for a second. Greg, Greg Berhalter's system is a mm -hmm. fire extinguisher for informed forwards. It's what it is because they're trying to live off scraps. You're asking guys like Ricardo Pepe who are finishers or when they're in their form are finishers to go into the midfield, as you said, and then try to come off seven or eight touches and feel like you can be effective on the field. Jesus Ferreira, to his credit, at least got a shot off, though I don't believe he's an effective forward. You're asking a converted nine to do other things so other players can be good or can be better. A Christian Pulisic, a Brendan Harrison, a Giovanni Reyna, so they could be dangerous. The issue here isn't Jordan Peacock, whether I'd like to admit it or not. It's this system and what Ooh. they ask of these nines. Now, Jordan Peefock should be on this flight. Jordan Peefock is an in, is a, is a currently an informed goal scorer that you don't find who has added the ability to facilitate others into his game at the highest of levels of the Bundesliga. You know this better than I. You were in the exact same position in 2006. You were the informed striker, the guy that everybody wanted on the national team. Your goals day in, day out, week in, week out, were screaming for Bruce Arena to take you, and you weren't there. You know what this is like, Taylor. This has got to be killing Jordan Peacock and probably the other forwards putting pressure on them too. All right, very quickly, very quickly, because i got to get a straight answer out of both of you on this. First game against Wales, the forward that gives the U.S. the best chance to win that game is Herc. Josh Sargent, because he's the, if you want to go to a compromise of what Greg Berhalter asks and the abilities he can give you, he's the direct compromise. Mm. Taylor, you agree? I do agree, mainly because the pedigree of the player that he's going up against is more than likely going to be the same pedigree he's going up against in the championship week in and week out. And so he's going to have an understanding of how to play against the Welsh defender. So I think Herc hits the nail on the head. Do I think that's going to be the answer? No, I don't. I think Jesus Ferreira in this profile of being mobile and flexible and pulling off, that's what Greg's going to look at. But I think Herc's right. I think of those three players that we just saw, I think Josh Sargent's your best. Yeah. Why not take four? You got 26 spots this year. Why not take four? I keep coming back to that. We talk about it with Mexico and with the U.S. There's there's three spots. For you don't have to forward. start Jordan Peefock, but he Why does not have to just come in in the game. Why not just take a fourth? Um, okay, our final, <laughs> what are we doing? We go from the front to the back. Let's discuss another important position, center backs. We saw Aaron Long and Walker Zimmerman uh, start both of the games over this international window. Taylor, what are we doing in the center of the American defense? I think the issue with the center back partnership actually has a lot to do with, and I know Herc's going to talk about this as well, the system. I don't think the strengths and weaknesses of the two center backs that we saw against Japan and Saudi Arabia are suited for playing out of the back, are suited of playing under pressure. Are they athletic? Are they good in the air? Can they defend? Absolutely. But how many silly, sloppy giveaways did we see from Aaron Long and Walker Zimmerman, and I would throw Weston McKinney in there as well, in particular in the Japan game, where there's very little pressure in, in decision-making there and options, and the ball's just coughed up. And so, again, I go back to my original statement. If I'm Wales, if I'm England, and if I'm Iran, and I watch that Japan game, I'm immediately allowing the goalkeeper to roll it out to Zimmerman, to roll it out to Aaron Long, and then I am going to hound them. I'm going to get after them like a pack of wolves and turn them over and get going, going the other way. Because the other part is, you're not having to worry about the direct ball going forward because the United States doesn't want to play that, and their number nine's coming in. The two center backs right now, I think, would be better suited 
and a more simplified idea and system of play. And that way, it plays into the strengths of who they are and not ultimately what their weaknesses are. And I think the Miles Robinson injury is massive because what we've seen from Greg Berhalter is he doesn't want to call in John Brooks. And the moment Chris Richards went down, Cameron Carter Vickers went down, Tim Ream doesn't get a call. That tells you right now where Tim Ream is on the pecking order. And he's playing every single minute and every single week in the best league in the world. And so I just think if you're going to tell me it's Zimmerman along, I, I, I think I would change the philosophy because it's, it, it doesn't suit either center back. Yeah, I, I won't talk about the partnership of Zimmerman along because you've stressed that enough right there. And I, I'm, I'm with you there. I will say Chris Richards and Walker Zimmerman give you the best combination of physicality and technical ability that complement mm. each other. Yes. And maybe you can get away with playing out of the back because you have Chris Richards to an extent. And I think people get the wrong idea with Walker Zimmerman. Walker Zimmerman actually can be very beneficial playing out of the back if you play to his ability of switching a ball. He's got a penchant for playing that long ball and really putting it on your foot. All yes. against Morocco, he put Christian Pulisic on a dime. A few times where he found Weston yep. McKinney. Weston McKinney bad touches, led him backwards instead of forwards into goal. He has that penchant for that switch. It could be a good combination of strength, physicality, and technical ability with that athleticism that protects you in from behind. I feel like everybody's kind of holding their breath for Chris Richards, right? Everybody wants to see him get healthy uh, and, and maybe take that spot that right now we've seen uh, Aaron Long next to Walker Zimmerman. Uh, we know how Herc feels about John Brooks. Every, every episode here on Football America, we get, we get Herc talking about John Brooks, how much he misses him uh, on the national team. I'll throw, I'll throw Tim Ream into that, into that discussion as well. Those, those are two guys with obviously huge resumes, uh, Taylor. When we talk about the center backs, do you mm -hmm. think one of or, or either of those guys, both of those guys should, should be in the conversation? I think specifically Brooks, right? Brooks is a guy that we've, we've talked about for a long time on this show. It's an interesting discussion because naturally you look at it and say John Brooks is playing where he is. He's playing against quality competition week in and week out. So how do you leave a guy out like that? Now, differently than P-Folk is this. All three of us have seen a lot of John Brooks with the U.S. men's national team. We know who he is. We know his last appearance against Honduras was one of the worst appearances of his professional career. And so I can buy into that. I also can buy in, if you want to sell me, Tim Ream's national team career has been underwhelming at best. But here's the argument for both Brooks and Ream. Nobody ahead of them right now is dominating. Nobody ahead of them in the pecking order is playing on a regular basis at the highest of levels and most importantly, understanding what the job is. And so that's why I look at it and say, the Mark McKenzie's of the world, the Eric Palmer Browns of the world. Okay, they're playing. Yeah, I get it. But are they playing anywhere any much better than John Brooks or Tim? Like the Tim Ream thing for me is very difficult to understand. Herc knows this. At the World Cup, you need players that are versatile. Anthony Robinson's out with an injury. He starts left back for Fulham in the Premier League, guys. So I just look at it and say, if you give me four center backs that are playing, I have no problem leaving Brooks and Ream at home based on where their national team careers have been. But, guys, you know as well as I do, no one's dominating the center back position other than I would say Walker Zimmerman has put his footprint in saying, all right, I'm the leader, I'm going to go. Everyone else is in the same boat. Yeah, but Greg Berhalter has told us he wants to play with the high line. I don't see him playing the high line at the World <coughs> Cup. I actually see the U.S. men's national being pinned in a lot. What I will stress is your most experienced player not just defender, most experienced player on the national team is going to be DeAndre Yedlin. It's going to be his second World Cup. At some point, you're going to need experience because experience brings that calm. And yes. we heard Greg Berhalter yep. after the game say maybe the guys are worried or maybe they're, they're stressed yep. about not making the team. If they are nervous right now in an empty stadium on neutral ground versus yep. Japan and Saudi Arabia, what's it going to be like versus England when it's packed, versus Wales when it's packed, versus Iran when you have geopolitical pressure on you? Sure. To your point about experience, Chris Richards uh, doesn't yep. have much. I couldn't agree, uh, I couldn't agree more. Caps, okay. But, yeah. All right, uh, that's all the time we've got. Uh, Taylor, thanks for joining us here on Football America. It's great to have you with us on the show. Safe travels to uh, your next MLS assignment. I know you've got uh, LAFC in Portland coming up on the weekend. See you, boys. There he is, Taylor Twelman. Uh, we got some more U.S. news. Gio Reyna's out. Uh, I hate these. 
Up to 10 days after picking up a muscle strain while on international duty, the 19-year-old was subbed off at the 30-minute mark on Tuesday. Herc, maybe those back-to-back -back starts weren't such a great idea. Oh, man, I'm getting John O'Brien vibes. If you're a New Age soccer fan. Don't do fan, it. Don't do that to Gio. If you don't know who John O'Brien is, look him up. This man was a menace. This man was so good technically, such a high ceiling. Please, please, baby Jesus, don't let this happen. Uh, Eden Terzic, who is, of course, uh, Borussia Dortmund's manager, said he hopes Reyna can return after the Sevilla game, which uh, they'll play Sevilla in Champions League next Wednesday. So far this season, just 247 minutes of club action for Reyna with Borussia Dortmund. There you see some of the stats over his last three seasons in the Bundesliga. Gio Reyna, again, out up to 10 days after picking up a muscle strain on international duty. Don't forget, ESPN Plus is the home of the Bundesliga. We got a huge game on Saturday. Bayern Munich, the defending champs, who right now sit fifth and are not off to a great start against a team that's really struggling. Bayer Leverkusen, 15th in the table. Coverage starts 2.30 p.m. Eastern time on Saturday. Don't miss it. This podcast is proud to be supported by Jets Pizza, the number one pick in Detroit-style pizza. Why? It's simple. Jets is better. With the thickest, crispiest, cheesiest Detroit-style pizza in the country, there's no competition. Right now, get $5 off any eight-corner pizza with code 8SAVE. That's the number eight, S-A-V-E. Go to jetspizza.com to learn more and find a location near you. Again, try Jets' signature eight-corner pizza and get $5 off with code 8SAVE. That's the number eight, S-A-V-E. Jets Pizza. Better because it has to be. We all know breakfast is an important part of your day. But sometimes when you're traveling for business, you end up staying at a hotel that doesn't offer any. You know what happens? You grab a cup of coffee and skip the meal entirely. We've all been there. But if you book a room at La Quinta by Wyndham, you can enjoy their free bright side breakfast featuring delicious baked goods, fruit, eggs, yogurt, and waffles. And really, who doesn't want to start their day with a fresh, hot waffle? Tonight, La Quinta, tomorrow you shine. Book direct at LQ.com. Tata Martino then making headlines for his post-game comments after Mexico lost 3-2 against Colombia on Saturday. Joining us for more, Mauricio Pedrosa. Mao, welcome back to the show. Great as always to have you. Glad to be here, guys. Okay, so real quick, let's recap kind of what uh, Tata Martino said there for those who weren't uh, following along in the subtitles. He talked about Mexican soccer being peculiar. He complained about Mexican players not leaving the domestic league. He talked about the league not maybe being in service of the national team. And he, of course, talked about uh, Mexican football's many past frustrations. Uh, it didn't have much to do with the game. Mao, is it time for Tata Martino to get lost for his post-match comments? I mean, would the real Tata Martino please stand up, right? Where was this guy a year ago, a year and a half, two years ago? This is no news for everyone who has been involved in Mexican soccer in recent history. There's no news whatsoever. This is exactly how Mexican soccer operates. And now to the final part of his statement where, where he's complaining that the league doesn't do any favors to the Mexican national team, I want to ask Gerardo Martino, what league around the world is focused around their national team and not their own business? That's not the way it works. So I think he should completely get lost. Now, going back to the first part of his statement, mm -hmm. I think there's a lot that we can actually talk about, but I will focus on just this one thing. Gerardo Martino is the Mexican national team manager so that the team, the individuals, the players progress do better, improve as a team. So if Colombia, in the span of 15 minutes, is going to turn the game around, there's a portion of blame for the players, but there's a notion, a, a, also a big part of the blame for the manager, Gerardo Martino. And I didn't hear him also criticizing himself because obviously he was not going to do it. He should get lost. Ooh. Oh, you came feisty today. Yeah, it's been a while hey. stepping here, so yeah, I have things to say. To your question, uh, it's also the responsibility of the league because each ownership group has a say in how the national team is run, much like the FA in England. So, yes, uh, and also, did he lie? 
Did he no, say no, no, no. anything that was? No, no, he didn't. He didn't. So there's some validity there. But you know where it doesn't count? That's not why they lost to Colombia. That's not why Mexico has been struggling in this window. That's not why. And you gave him 15 minutes. I would have said seven, eight minutes. They turned <laughs> that game around in the first half. We joked about it before it went on air, which is the Colombia legends. Yeah. <laughs> Falcao and James Rodriguez is pretty much their going away uh, party, if you will. Listen, this is vintage right now. Tata Martino going at the press and what we've seen since Gerardo Torado's dismissal. He is on a mission. He is two seconds away from going nuclear and airing out all the dirty laundry come Qatar. Look, what he says, I don't think maybe he could get lost for, but the timing of it, Absolutely. This is something that you say, as you mentioned now, a year ago, a year and a half ago, or even when you took the job. These are kind of day one issues that he's talking about that he should have been complaining about two, three years ago as part of this buildup. Not now. Not now 50 days until the World Cup. We talk about him being already one foot out the door. Uh, I think he's already one foot of them going out in the group phase. Like He already sounds like a guy who's not just half gone, but very much half defeated. Yeah. Uh, this does not, to me, sound like a guy who's inspiring confidence either in his group, in terms of the technical staff, the team, and obviously not with the fan base or anybody else that watches this team. The other reason that I hate the timing of this, Mal, and I just want to get your perspective here, because I, I know Herc is just waiting for the L3 crash and burn uh, at the World Cup, but for maybe who somebody, for somebody who wants to see maybe Mexico succeed, yeah. this kind of covers up what were 45 very good minutes and the best minutes we've seen from Mexico since pre-pandemic. Now, there are other teams that we've already talked about in this show, like the U.S., that didn't even get 45 good minutes. Should there be some optimism, at least, for Mexico fans based on what they saw against Colombia in that first half? I think there should be some optimism by the fans, right? By those who want to see the team do well. But at the same time, you wonder, is this because of great decisions by Gerardo Martino, or is it because the players are good enough that in a good day, they will give you good 45 minutes? Not because of what has happened uh, inside of the Mexican national team, just because they are good enough players that given a good situation, they can perform really well. Now, the question is, why can you sustain the next 45 minutes to this level? And, and, and Gerardo Martino in that very same press conference said, there's no team in this world that can play for 90 minutes like we did for 45. And he's right. The problem is we haven't seen this in a long time. I think if you were checking social media during the game, I think the, 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 the common comment was, it's been a while. It's been mm -hmm. a long time. Yes. Where has this been team? Where has this team been in the past two years? So unfortunately, it feels like this was the exception to the rule. Can I, give okay. you a, can I give you a quick just parallel between the two coaches on the two main national teams or the two front runners, you will, if you will, historically in this region? It's Tata Martino starts off well, doesn't make in-game adjustments. He is terrible at that. Greg Berhalter starts off terribly, <laughs> makes good in-game adjustments. It's crazy to see the parallels between these two teams. Okay, so if you put them together, if you Frankenstein it, we might have a, a great manager there at the, uh, at the international level. Manager. All right, let's get to <laughs> three questions. Uh, and let's start with our first question, which has to do with formations. Now, guys, we've seen a lot of Mexico in a 4-3-3 under Tata Martino. But recently, we're seeing a little bit of a change to a 4-2-3-1. Mao, is this the formation Mexico should go with at the World Cup? Only against Argentina. And here is why. If you're going to play a 4-2-3-1, that means you're going to have two holding midfielders. Against Colombia in the first half, those two holding midfielders were Eric Gutierrez and Andres Guardado. You're going to have to play somehow Edson Alvarez into that equation. Now, I think they, they played really well next to each other. Andres Guardado playing more like a traditional number six, and then Eric Gutierrez being this link between defending and attacking. And I think if you're gonna play Argentina, a team that's gonna dominate possession, you need numbers in the midfield. So I think that formation makes a lot of sense. What is the downside? If you play with three attacking midfielders, you need a classic number 10. Bad news for Mexico, you don't have one. Mm. You don't have Cuauhtémoc Blanco. You've mentioned Carlos Vela in this example. 
So you cannot start against Poland with a 4-2-3-1 because then you're playing reactive. And Mexico needs to have the ball if they want to hurt a team like Poland who plays more a direct attack kind of soccer. So the answer is he should change it only against Argentina. Here's the reason you won't see it versus Argentina, or he won't change it. His name is Edson Alvarez. The only reason there was two pivots and Andres Guardado was one of them is because Andres, or excuse me, Edson Alvarez is not on the field. So Andres Guardado was the man dropping in between both center backs, Nestor Araujo and Hector Moreno. That was his job, to play as a deep line playmaker, if you will, with Guti a little ahead of him, and Charlie as that enganche, that number 10 that Mao was talking about. But when you have Edson Alvarez there, there's no need for Guardado. He's just a liability. So if you're going to go with Edson Alvarez, you need two interiors that can also give you that movement up and down the field. Guardado's not going to be that guy. So in the game that Mao is saying you will least have the ball, you're going to put in a guy like Andres Guardado in a function Her, to run what, and chase the ball? What if, That's what not if you play work. Eric? What if, you, what if you play as Edson Alvarez in that spot and then you play Eric Gutierrez like he did during those first 45 minutes against Colombia. And then you have Charlie Rodriguez in front of him and two wingers, right? I think that formation makes sense. Except for Tata Martino, who is going to have Hector Herrera there. Well, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think now that's the thing, right? I, I, that's my concern, her, because you always talk about it being a young man's game at the international level. I think you 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 got to figure out a way to have Hector Herrera have his role, Andres Guardado have his role. I don't know if you can have them on the field together. We've seen that a little bit in a 4-3-3. I don't, I don't think there's enough legs in that midfield. I like the idea of the 4-2-3-1. I like what you point out, Mal, which is the numerical advantage. I think having yeah. an extra guy in midfield uh, could be very beneficial to Mexico. And the other thing I would say is, hey, it's finally some flexibility from Tata, right? We, we said he's stubborn. We said he won't change his mind. Well, maybe here's a, a little bit of something that shows he can be flexible. All right, next goals, on our three questions. Minutes. Next on our three questions. Is it time to bench Chucky Lozano in favor of what they're calling El Tridente Olimpico featuring Alexis Vega, Uriel Antuna, and Henry Martin, who of course we saw get the start against Colombia. Mao, what say you, Chucky, to the bench? Can I say, can I say hell no on TV? Yes, you can absolutely say that to this. hundred percent. Hell no! No way! What are you talking about? You have to start. Chucky Lozano, he is right now, right now, the only player in that attacking trio that can actually perform at a top level because he plays internationally. He plays in Italy for Napoli. I know we are all in love with Alexis Vega. I am in love with Alexis Vega. I think he's, <laughs> I even changed my mind from the last time that I was here when we asked who should start in Tecatito Corona's place. And I said, Diego Lainez. Fine, I changed my mind. That one has to be Alexis Vega. But you cannot bench Chucky Lozano, especially for a very average player like Uriel Antuna. If you all remember who Jurgen Dam was, Uriel Antuna is the exact same thing. Fast dude whose crosses are questionable and doesn't truly defend. So, no, the answer, very passionate answer, it is no. You have to start Chucky Lozano, Alexis Vega, and yeah, sure, Henry Martin. Uriel Antuna is one of the most productive players when he puts on that green shirt. Oh, That's my gosh. Here. <laughs> we're we're leaning on statistics from 2019. Here we go. Yeah, here's oh the thing. You want, another, you want another stat? Chucky Lozano has scored one goal in the last eight months. You want another stat? I would go as far as saying El Tridente Olimpico over El Tridente that they used in World Cup qualifying. Raul Jimenez, Tecatito Corona, and Chucky Lozano. Because they were pitiful. Because they were terrible. They were bad. They scored one goal. One goal between the three of them was a penalty kick. Okay? When they were on the field together. They are names. They're not a team. You've seen... And I don't like using U23 tournaments as an example, but El Tridente Olimpico, you saw in the first half how important they were versus a team like Colombia. Who, who were they who playing against? Them back. Who were they playing against? Colombia. I just said like a team versus <laughs> yeah. oh, Colombia. Oh, oh, I no, just no, mentioned yeah. Colombia. No, yeah, but I'm saying that under-23 team, do you think that's exactly the standard no, that, we have, about that we Colombia. have to use and to this measure is, and this is, the attacking and this is, trio? And, now, and this is the most important thing because you are 
52 days away from the World mm -hmm. Cup, you have today. Yeah. Because you're not talking about the Raul Jimenez version of yesterday. You're not talking about Tecatillo Corona of yesterday. You're not they're, talking about Chucky yeah, Lozano, who scored against Germany and Russia. You're talking about their play today. Okay. Chucky Lozano doesn't play today. So you think Antuna's momentum is better than Chucky Lozano's? No, but you're mentioning the three, El Tridente. Yeah. And yes, I would say the A3 worked better than nah. Chucky Lozano on the field. No, come on. I'll, I'll give you Henry Martin. Yeah. I'll give you Alexis Vega. Yeah. But I will not give you Riel Antuna. We were at the Skills Challenge. We broadcast the Skills Challenge. Well, right? that you don't remember on the field if you don't the Skills Challenge? Challenge. Stop. <laughs> All right. All right, uh, final question here on this uh, edition of Three Questions with Mauricio Pedrosa. Let's focus on the defense. Who will be Mexico's center back pairing? Now, Mal, last week you said it was going to be Johan Vasquez. Uh -oh, and then that. in these two games, he gets the big, fat, hairy, ugly DNP. Did not play. So uh, oh. what do you think it'll be? <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, last, last week I told you who I would start. Yes. Now the question is who will start. And I have to go with Cesar Montes and Hector Moreno. Because that is clearly Tata Martino's favorite pairing at center back for the Mexican national team. I disagree. I think you have to start either Nestor Araujo or Johan Vasquez. Now you said Araujo and Vasquez last week. This is yes. totally the opposite. Totally of what the you opposite. Want. And I'm just a commentator. Tata Martino is a very experienced manager who probably knows more football than me. Fine, but I just have to go with what I see. And what I see is recently Cesar Montes has barely played. And if you go back, because let's remember, Cesar Montes and Hector Moreno are teammates in Monterrey. Victor Manuel Bucetich doesn't even think that's their best pair at center back at his own club. Yet, Gerardo Martino for some reason believes they are. Again, I would start Nestor Araujo and Johan Vasquez. That's only me. And the fact that Johan Vasquez played zero minutes in the last international break tells me everything I need to know of what Tata Martino thinks of him. But I would still insist that Nestor Araujo right now, 30 years old, he's the best center back in the best club in the Mexican League right now. He should start next to, and this is just resignation, Hector Moreno. Cesar Montes is the best center back Mexico has today. Johan Vasquez may be the biggest name that everybody was excited about at the U23 level, and then he made a Serie A move, and everybody was still excited about him and kept clamoring and yelling and exigiendo Tata Martino bringing Johan Vasquez. But the reality is, Tata Martino doesn't care for Johan Vasquez. He played very little in World Cup qualifying. In fact, the very few times he did play were Mexico's worst moments. Moments against Canada, moments against the U.S. That was when Johan Vasquez was on the field. So he doesn't have that equity built in with Tata. That's not what I feel. That's what Tata has shown us. That's what we've seen because Johan Vasquez doesn't get on the field. Who do we want to see? It doesn't matter. Because the reality is, I would love to see, I know they're different pro uh, profiles, but I would love to see Nestor Araujo and Cesar Montes. I think, as Mao has stated, we're going to get Hector Moreno and Cesar Montes. The profiles are very important, even though he's not even asking these guys to play out of the back cleanly. He's going to drop in Edson Alvarez or Guardado, as we saw, versus Colombia. But at some point, the leadership of Moreno, the aerial ability, and Cesar Montes' physical attributes, when you are stuck and pinned in behind the likes of Poland and Argentina, are going to come into play. All right, I actually agree with Herc here. For once, uh, I think Cesar Montes is, for me, the, the best of the lot by far. I think he should definitely start. I, I have never had a huge amount of faith in Araujo. Um, and actually, based on what we saw from Hector Moreno over the last two games, I saw some, some character, some leadership, some yelling at guys. Yeah. Uh, so I feel like maybe that's something he that Mexico needs. can yell from the needs. bench. That's fine. He can scream from the bench. <laughs> Same effect. Uh, so there we have a, a big question mark for Tata Martino uh, as we focus in on the center of the Mexican defense. All right, that's all the time we've got now. Thanks for joining us here on Football Americas. As always, great to have you with Gracias, us. Gracias, amigos. And uh, don't forget, we got uh, the last weekend of the season coming up in Liga Mekis. Top game on Saturday on ESPN Plus and ESPN Deportes. A top four showdown. Second place, Rayados against third place, Pachuca.
Hi, it's Mike Greenberg letting you know ESPN Bet is ready to take you through all the biggest sports moments this spring. The official sportsbook of ESPN has exclusive offers and markets from Scott Van Pelt, Stephen A. Smith, and me, plus many more. From the playoff intensity to finally getting out to the ballpark, there's no better time for sports fans. Sign up today. New users get a bet reset up to $1,000 in bonus bets if your first bet doesn't win. Download ESPN Bet today. What a play. Must be 21 plus and present in select states. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply. See app for details. Okay, Herc, some big news here. Our colleague John Sutcliffe over at ESPN Deportes is reporting that Dallas will get the 2026 World Cup Final. Well, actually, Arlington, Texas, not quite Dallas. AT&T Stadium, a.k.a. Jerry's World. We've heard SoFi Stadium in Los Angeles is a possibility. MetLife Stadium in New Jersey. But the early reports say Dallas, although folks in charge of the Dallas bid are saying that uh, the reporting is premature. So, Herc, what do you think? Are you cool with it, the 2026 World Cup final to be played at Jerry's World? Seriously? I mean, there are people in Texas, in the Dallas-Fort Worth area, in Arlington, who are scratching their heads. Public transportation, it's pretty much impossible to get to the stadium unless you have a car. So you're going to have all these tourists from all around the world and no public transportation. You have two meccas like Los Angeles and the New York, New Jersey surrounding areas. Insert your joke, if you will, there. I know, Meadowlands, whatever you want. That would suffice. I understand climate may be an issue. Field dimensions in the other. But if you've already cleared both, you're going to take it to Arlington, to Jerry's World, where they could expand to 105, and I would assume that's why they're doing this. I would assume Jerry Jones and that conglomerate over there has something to say, and that's why it's going there, per the reporting. Is it still very premature? And I hope it's not the case. I am still very much vying for Los Angeles. Look, uh, I grew up in Washington, so you know I can't be pro-Dallas like too hard and and, uh, keep my DC card here. Uh, I can't believe Jerry Jones is going to get a World Cup final, dude. I just, like, what has Jerry Jones ever done for soccer? Well, he's had the Mexican national team come through Jerry's world a couple times so he could uh, make some money. Like, please, what has Jerry Jones ever done for soccer? The, the one maybe redeeming thing about it being in Dallas is, you know, the Hunt family's done a lot for soccer. I think this has a lot more to do with them uh, than maybe Jerry Jones. Uh, I'm not crazy about it, Herc. I'm not crazy about it. I'm not super cool with it being in Dallas. Uh, even a guy like, and I can't believe I'm actually going to do this, even a guy like Stan Kroenke, Herc, who owns your beloved Colorado Rapids, owns Arsenal, has poured millions, maybe billions of dollars into soccer. Into real estate. Oh, I'm sorry, you said soccer. Yes, and, and has a oh. better stadium, by the way. I think we both agree. SoFi ahead of AT&T, right? Yeah, I mean, I've never yes. been to AT&T, but I've been plenty oh, of times to SoFi. SoFi's better than AT&T for sure. Uh, I would rather see L.A. and SoFi get it than, uh, than Dallas and AT&T. But, but uh, either way, I'm sure it'll be a, a great event there. The 2026 World Cup we'll be final. There. We shall see. Speaking, Herc, of big events, we got one coming next February. The L.A. Galaxy and LAFC will open their 2023 MLS seasons against each other at the Rose Bowl. Scheduled for February 25th. It'll kick off the campaign for both teams. We know Charlotte FC set the single game regular season attendance record earlier this season, just short of 75,000. So the new question is this, will next February's El Tráfico at the Rose Bowl break that record and get up over 75,000 in attendance? Herc, what do you think? I think so. Game one, yeah. Uh, That rivalry, yeah. LA is very much a football mecca. We saw what League's Cup did at Ooh. SoFi. Yes, we did. A lot of those fans, those America fans, those Chiva fans that packed that stadium underneath those jerseys, Galaxy and LAFC jerseys. There is no sporting event where these people do not come out for. Mm. I've seen, for the most irrelevant of games, this stadium get packed. And I'm not talking about UCLA. I'm not talking about football. I am talking about... Moleros. You're talking Moleros. about the Moleros. I was at a Mexico versus Cuba. A lot of those fans, many of those fans, believe it or not, do support LAFC, do support the Galaxy. That is a big rivalry here yeah. within California, within Los Angeles. And I do think it is achievable. Yeah. The marketing buzz behind it, 
is big too. I got my rose, I got my newspaper sent to my house. Thank you to whoever sent it. It's going to happen. Wow, it's going to happen. So you say are more than 75,000. We've seen this before, right? With like the Cali Classico, with uh, LA Galaxy and San Jose. They've gotten over 50,000 yeah. uh, plenty of times for that game. So you know there, there's a formula here at play that I think uh, both these teams will do well to lean on. I wouldn't be surprised if it breaks the attendance record. Eric. I guess the bigger question here is, do you think it will sell out the Rose Bowl, which is a capacity 90,000? Because that wouldn't just be breaking the record. That'd be breaking the record by more than 15,000 fans. That'd be significant. What's, what date is it? February? February 25th. First game of the season. You got months to sell tickets. There will be no more NFL. Super Bowl will be over. There'll be no more college football. That's not started yet. <sighs> yeah. It'll be tough. It'll be tough. 90,000 would be no, a I very... No, I think you could do it. You think so? Yeah. Okay. Either way, 90,000 would be a very, very impressive number for a Major League Soccer regular season match. Uh, speaking of LAFC, they are in action on Sunday, Herc, against the Portland Timbers. We got one team chasing the shield, another team trying to hold on to their playoff spot out there in the Western Conference. It's LAFC against the Portland Timbers Sunday on ABC and ESPN Deportes. U.S. Women's National Team Manager Vladko Andonovsky has named a 24-player roster for upcoming friendlies against England and Spain. The headlines, Alex Morgan is out with a knee injury. Crystal Dunn returns for her first full call-up. Easy for me to say, since giving birth. Other regulars, Becky Sauerbrunn, Lindsey Horan, Rose Lavelle, Megan Rapino are all in the team. Joining us for further reaction, two-time World Cup and Olympic champion Julie Foudy. Julie, been forever since we had you here on Football America's great to have you back. I see you're well and recovered from the Little League World Series, huh? <laughs> Barely. I've missed you guys. I, missed you I too. don't have my Zoom return on, but I understand you might be wearing a very cool jersey. You, you know I'm wearing a shirt. It's a little baseball tee, Angel City. You know it. There it is. There yes. it is. Let's go, Sebby. I, uh, I made, I made it to an Angel City game as well, which was, uh, which was awesome. So you guys, uh, you guys have the Football Americas team entirely covered here when it comes to the National Women's Soccer League. Let's focus in on the U.S., though. Uh, we got some big news here. Alex Morgan out, Julie. What kind of impact is this on the national team, especially with some really good competition coming up? And who do you think steps up and takes advantage of these minutes that are now available? Yeah, I, I, it's always a big impact when, when you miss a player like Alex Morgan, and especially the way Alex Morgan's been playing in NWSL, leading the entire league um, and scoring a lot of goals and playing with a lot of confidence. So for her, you feel the pain a bit because these are two games you are, as a player, you're like, oh my gosh, I'd give anything to play in these games. And uh, this injury won't allow that to happen. However, it does provide an opportunity for Ashley Hatch to get some time in the nine. And as we've been seeing in the NWSL, Sophia Smith plays in the nine for Portland often. Um, and so maybe she, she slides into the middle. And, and, and honestly, every time you have a good player down, we always say it's an opportunity for another player to step up. And so it's a good test for Hatch and for that front line to deal without an Alex Morgan in the lineup. No Alex Morgan, but Crystal Dunn is back in. How important of a player is she for Vlaco and this U.S. team, Julie? Yeah, her huge, huge. Dunner gives energy and charisma. And, I mean, you could see it in Vlaco Andonovsky in the last camp. He said um, to us before the game, he said, just having Crystal back, she comes dancing into the locker room. She's full of joy. And I think, honestly, that veteran leadership, that energy is something that with a young group you need and you want to see. And so I think they're thrilled to see her back, getting some time, uh, NWSL time, and doing well, I mean, by all accounts. So I think it's great news for her to be back there and for the team. They love having her in, in, the, in the locker room and on the field. Yeah, long absence there for, uh, for Crystal Dunn. We saw a lot of Emily Fox at left back. I thought she played pretty well, but I think it's, it's still at least clearly for now Crystal Dunn's position. She is, she is uh, one of the best players in the world for a reason, certainly at that left back spot, and really anywhere you put her as we see uh, in the National Women's Soccer League. All right, there's one other player on this roster, Julie, that I think uh, when we first got the list really jumped out at everybody. That's Alyssa Thompson. She is just 17 years old. She's the youngest call-up that we've had in over five years 
years. What can you tell us about this player and maybe what's the timeline where we might see her develop and, and become a part of this senior national team? Yeah, and think about this. Born in 2004. That's the year I retired. Oh. That's when she was born, which is crazy. Um, so uh, Aaron Heifetz, the press officer, said to me today that Alyssa is closer in age to Alex's daughter, Charlie, than she is to Becky and Megan Rubino. I was like, wow. you said it, I didn't. <laughs> so, um, yeah, 17-year-old who is here in Southern California. She plays on an under-17 MLS Next Boys team to give wow. you some perspective of how good she is. And she played on the under-20 team. She played at the under-20 World Cup. She had a goal and an assist, but she's got pace. She's fast. We know she can score a lot of goals. Uh, we've seen her do it at the youth national team level. Uh, and clearly, I think this is a situation where this is an up-and-coming star who's maybe not there yet, of course, at 17, but it, it had to have been a decision, I imagine, for Vlad Glendonovsky and his staff of weighing, okay, Mitch Purse, for example, who plays in that right wing position. Alyssa's a winger. Do we, we know what we can get from Midge. Midge hasn't, as Vlad Glendonovsky said in his presser today, hasn't been top form. She's taken a dip in form. Her team, Gotham, uh, hasn't been playing that well. Well, that's an understatement. Hasn't been playing well at all. So he said, it's a chance for me to look at another player. And it's a chance, hopefully, for Midge Purse to reset and get back in there. Uh, but I think it's actually an interesting move. I, I, I like it. I like the idea of, okay, we're still eight months out from having to name a World Cup roster. And if we are going to look, it's going to be very selective now. They're going to start honing in on that, that full uh, roster. But here's a player that seems to be special by all accounts and uh, is doing very well. Well, let's talk expectations. Uh, Sebi over here keeps telling me the U.S. women are still the best in the world. But there's no Alex Morgan going into next week, and they're playing away against England and away against Spain. Do you still see them as favorites, Julie? I don't see them as favorites against England. I mean, going into Wembley, sold out as we know. It's sold out in 24 hours or less. Uh, European championships who are on form, on a high, very confident, uh, is going to be a tough challenge, I think, for the United States, who's still a, a young team. I mean, we, we've talked about, you know, flipping the page from the Olympics a lot and trying to build this younger group in, uh, and it's going to take some time. So I see actually England as the favorites for this one still. But as we know, when you're playing the World Cup champion against the European reigning champion, I think it's going to be a great game at a sold-out Wembley Stadium. It, 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 I, I'm jealous we don't have it on our air. It's on Fox. Well, what about uh, and the then, game? Um, against, yeah, what about the Spain game? Yes. You, you think they're favorites there or are the underdogs there too? I do think that the U.S. is favorites against Spain. And uh, there was a uh, public disclosure of some of the tension that's happening. I think that was supposed to stay behind the scenes or the players had hoped would stay behind the scenes. And uh, the Spanish Federation came out saying uh, that 15 players have demanded that uh, Jorge Vilda, our coach, resign or they're not going to play. And we are not taking that you know, demand. Uh, and, of course, the players have pushed back on that, saying we did not demand that. We've demanded that there be some changes, some professionalization of this team. Um, Alexis Puteas, who, of course, is the Ballon d'Or winner and star of the team, is injured. She wasn't one of the 15 because she isn't part of the roster right now with her ACL injury, but she is in support of it. Irena Paredes, another star player, wasn't part of that 15. She's apparently reportedly uh, up on board with the players as well. So this is going to be interesting because the roster, which comes out tomorrow for Spain, is going to be a very different one. It will be largely, I think, youth players. But having said that, this youth national team for Spain, current under-17 World Cup champions, current under-20 World Cup champions. They've had so much success at the youth national team level for Spain on the world stage. We've known this for a very long team, that their youth movement is strong. So it's still going to be a big challenge for the United States. Yep, should be a uh, fascinating, fascinating week for the U.S. women's national team. England on October 7th, Spain on October 11th. Julie Fowdy, thanks so much for joining us here on Football Americas. Miss you guys. There she is, Julie Fowdy. We'll be on the call together. Spain against the U.S. next Tuesday, October 11th. Coverage starts 2.30 p.m. Eastern time on ESPN2 and streaming live on the ESPN app. All right, time for our parting shot here, Herc. It's the end of an era. 
FIFA 23, the video game, is out, and it's the last of its kind. From next year on, it'll be known as EA Sports FC after a licensing battle. Herc, that's kind of sad. Yeah, tomorrow's the last day. You know what's sad? It, it's a game that everybody grew up with. It's a game that brought a lot of my friends together that weren't even soccer fans. People that I know who don't even like soccer play FIFA, they love it, and now it's all coming to an end. Very fortunate enough to actually be in the game. One of the greatest thrills of my life was seeing myself, little digital character, playing his little digital heart out on my console. So that was pretty cool, but you shall be missed. What was your pace? Oh, no, pace and shot were money, my man. <laughs> yeah, these kids have nothing on me. Okay, we got to get uh, Herc's FIFA player card for a future reference here on Football Americas. All right, that's it for this edition of the show. We will be back on Monday with a full look ahead to the Liga Mekis playoffs. We've also got the USA England week when it comes to the women's game. And Herc, what do you got in your hand there? This is a tally. Just want to say thank you to you for watching us. This is for you, and thank you to production. Production yes. who works tireless hours to give you that great content. It just isn't this beautiful face and that little, pretty little guy to my right over there. All it we takes do, production. all we thank do you. here at Football Americas is hang banners. There you see it, the, uh, the first of many in Hercules' hand. He's Herc Thanks banners. for watching. We'll see you on Monday on the That's next the edition of the, of the show. That's the name of my book that's coming out. Take that, Christian.